0: Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Inside ND Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football, recruiting, and more for InsideNDSports.com on the Rivals Network. Notre Dame limped into its second bye week with a disappointing 31-23 loss at Clemson, in which the offense continued to struggle. Quarterback Sam Hartman had arguably the worst passing performance of his Notre Dame tenure, and the Irish seemed to be running out of answers offensively. Uh, our answer on the Inside and Esports podcast was to reach out to two-time Notre Dame quarterbacks coach Peter Voss to get his thoughts on all of it. Peter, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Tyler. Eric, how you guys doing? Doing well. I'm doing great. Great. So first off, Peter, are you surprised that Notre Dame's passing attack hasn't been more dynamic with Sam Hartman? Uh, I, I guess my answer to that is no, not really. Uh,
1: n- number one, The passing game is probably the most complicated part of football today, the most sophisticated, and it takes a while to get used to it. And I saw Sam play, oh, it's probably going on back to now two or three years ago when he was at Wake. And one of the things about Wake's offense is, Wake's offense is different than most others. As I remember, it had that elongated zone read to it, which led to a tremendous amount of play action passing. Uh, and so when you make an adjustment, it takes time. And, and there are a lot of factors that probably go into the adjustment. Sam had to go through uh, and probably is still going through. Um, so is it a surprise? No, not really. They've had a lot of success. The The other thing that I did when you guys asked me to... Um, speak here or talk talk be interviewed whatever we want to call it (laughs) is I went and looked at his uh his statistics and you guys are much more statistic oriented than I am but I'm going to probably round off these numbers at wake over the full body of work he threw 100 touchdown passes and 40 interceptions now in my third grade math that's about two and a half to one Well, at Notre Dame so far, he's 18 and seven. Now we'll graduate and go to the fourth grade math. That's still about two and a half to one. So Sam is what he is. Uh, And, you know, the offense is a little bit different. The offense is probably developing as the season goes, experimenting a little bit. Some experiments are good. Some experiments aren't. Uh, So to answer your question in a long winded way. No, it's not a surprise.
2: Okay. We will term what you're doing with us as enlightening us. So
1: <laughs> I, I appreciate the compliment.
2: <laughs> okay. So, I mean, Peter, you have been an offensive coordinator. You've been a quarterbacks coach, running backs coach, I think tight ends coach you've had some time sharing those positions uh, and so forth. But when you're purely a quarterbacks coach, and you're, you see your quarterback going backwards and at least as confidence and and performance we can make the case for as well. How do you go about addressing that with that quarterback? How do you go about fixing that?
1: Uh, I, I think you do a couple of things. And, and let, let's just talk about philosophically coaching so, in general. There, there are a lot of people that believe in the tough love thing. A, a quarterback position to me, and right, wrong, or indifferent, has always been a little bit different than that. A quarterback is somebody that has to be held in esteem by everybody else. He's the he's the leader. You have to see him as the, as a leader, and you have to treat him as a leader. So to get to the meat of your question, what do you do? You remind him of what he does well, and then you return to fundamentals. Uh, And then in the course of a game or a practice, you play to his strengths. You rebuild his confidence. You remind him of what he has accomplished. You remind him of how he's gotten there. And you return to that. And to be perfectly honest with you, here's an interesting sidelight because things have changed so much. And since you use the word, I'll steal it. I've become enlightened in the last 10 or 12 years since I've been away from it in the sense that one of the things that's very prominent in coaching today is a private quarterback coach. Tom Brady went to a private quarterback coach forever. Um, One of the things I would ask, and it's one of those uh, rhetorical questions, does Sam have one? And my question and the reason I bring it up is he was used to a system for four or five years. I believe he was at Wake for five years. And now he's coming into a system that Gerard is probably feeling his way through it and trying to develop it a little bit. Does Sam have a constant that he leans back or falls back on? Is it his dad? Is it his high school coach? Is it the current quarterback coach at Wake? Uh, has he been encouraged to talk to those people? Has he been encouraged to do something on a bye week to get away from it a little bit or to return to his roots? All those types of things enter into the mental makeup and the confidence level of a quarterback. And without confidence, without a sense of security, a quarterback is going to struggle. They, they they may not appear to be high-strung individuals, but they obviously have a very strong ego and you've got to make sure that that ego's on the right page.
2: I'll I'll inject something before Tyler asks his question. If the Wake Forest staff is advising him this week, they will be in big trouble (laughs) because they play Wake next.
1: (laughs) Touche, you're absolutely correct. That that particular fact eluded me as I made that answer, but you're you're right. Wake is on the schedule
0: this week, isn't it? Yeah,
2: next week, yes.
0: Peter, one thing that Seemed apparent to me. Now, obviously, I don't know the progressions. I don't necessarily know the play calls. um, But watching Sam against Clemson, it looked like he had maybe some impatience in going through his reads. And um, early on, I think he was just sort of throwing the ball downfield in some situations where he could have held on the ball. and And then the pass protection sort of fell apart on him and he didn't have a lot of help from there. How do you... How do you make sure a quarterback, when he is getting maybe frustrated, and I think this has been a frustrating stretch. You mentioned he has seven interceptions. Those have come in the last four games. How, how do you get a quarterback to sort of settle down um, and sort of trust what he's been doing, even if it hasn't been working in the last four or five games? You challenge him in a quiet way. You remind him of the success he's
1: had. You make an attempt in your play calling to give him some short, easy completions. Uh, you do all those things that are going to, quote, Make him feel good. Um, One of the things that is Notre Dame, uh, and that's probably why Sam chose to go there when he had other choices, from what I understand, is that you're constantly in a fishbowl. You have to relish that opportunity, that challenge. And it's certainly a challenge because you know as well as I do that when things are going bad, it's tough to maintain your composure. And so you have to remind him constantly, whether it's on the headset, whether it's by sitting down next to him on the bench, it has to come from more than just one individual. It's not just the quarterback coach. It's it's Gerard, the, the um, offensive coordinator. It, it it's uh, Marcus, the the head coach. It's it's his teammates. It's everybody around him that needs to show faith and confidence in what he's doing at that particular time.
2: Peter, I'm going to throw this out to you because again, you've coached at a lot of different levels, and again, had a lot of different roles. But some people in our fan base suggest, hey, why not play one of the younger quarterbacks the rest of the season, Bench Sam Hartman? And what would that do to your team dynamic if you did
1: that? Do you imagine? I would think that it would send a message of some sort. And I can't predict what the, what it would that message would be. But my fear would be that it would be a message of we've given up. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're building for the future. The the next two, possibly three games and likelihood three games don't mean anything. So I think it sends the wrong message. One of one of the things that is incredibly important in the game is that the only thing that matters is the next game. It doesn't matter if you own 11, when you go to play that 12th game, you better play it to win and you better play it to compete. If you're 11 and 0, you better go play that twelfth game to compete and to play as well as you can. It doesn't matter what's happened before; it's the next challenge in front of you. And for Notre Dame right now, the next challenge is to think about Wake. They can't pot. They can't. They can't afford to start thinking about Stanford or start to think about. All right, are we going to go to Minnesota for the uh, bowl game, or are we headed to Florida for a bowl game? Uh, the, the, you got to focus on the here and now, and
0: and that's. Um, Wake Forest this Saturday. Peter, I think in the middle of the season when Sam Hartman's struggle started, it was coincided with Notre Dame losing some receivers to injury. Um, and I think I think Sam Hartman, from the fan base, and I think from many of us who cover him, give, was sort of given the benefit of the doubt. It's like, well, he's he's dealing with a lot of wide receiver issues. Um, but I think the longer this has gone on, it's like, well, okay, you know who your wide receivers are. You sort of have to deal with what you have. I I guess can you just sort of quantify the impact it would it would have on maybe not trusting your receivers and and not having a lot the playmakers at the wide receiver position to to bring that success for a quarterback? I, I, I certainly
1: will. And Sam's been around long enough to maybe have heard this, maybe have experienced it, maybe figured it out of his zone. But I know when I was in Canada, I had what's cu- who's currently a Hall of Fame quarterback in Canada, a young man by the name of Tracy Ham, And I remember during practice, I said to Tracy, Tracy, why are you throwing the ball there? That's not where the read takes you. And he looked at me and he said, Coach, I got to find out if I can trust him. If I can't trust him on Tuesday, I'm not throwing to him on Saturday. And that becomes a big part of it. That That's why Tom Brady, Julian Edelman. And everybody worked in the offseason. That, that's why Sam was there last spring and this summer developing a rapport. And he did that so well because of his character. If I'm not mistaken, he was chosen as a team captain. That's a difficult thing to do in a short period of time. Probably going to become more prevalent as time goes on in college football today. But um, to, to answer your point it, 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 uh, or your question, it makes a huge difference. First, you have to have confidence in yourself. Then you have to have confidence in those around you. And once that's broken, it's tough to regain. And what what regains it? Success. You know, throwing completions, ha- having somebody make a catch they're not supposed to make. You know, those types of things. And it becomes the confidence level. And, and, and it's not easy because confidence is gained through repeated successful opportunities.
2: Peter, I'm going to follow up on Tyler's question with regard to the wide receivers. The last two games, the guys receiving the most reps in the wide receiver group have been freshmen. In fact, the Pittsburgh game, number one, two, and three were freshmen. And I'm wondering, by and large, we'll throw out the freak, you know, Michael Floyd type uh, mm-hmm. freshman, but by and large with freshmen, what's the challenge of you know, being an effective, productive, consistent player in the offense as a freshman wide receiver?
1: Maturity. One of the things that scares the heck out of me about college football today, and I mentioned part of it, and that's the the private coaching and you guys are on the Rivals Network and the Rivals Five Stars and all those types of things, is that young people coming out of high school have just had a tremendous amount of success and they feel entitled And as a result, when that position, that playing time, those balls aren't thrown to them right away, what happens? They tend to pout. So the answer to your question is maturity. Are you mature enough to fight through and show what you really can do? Because you know as well as I do, coaches are going to play the best players and coaches don't make the decision as to who the best players are players do by how they practice and how they perform in practice and so for young people to be stepping forward like that uh is a testament to the university of notre dame in itself in the sense that they attract quality charactered people that have that maturity level and it obviously has to do with the culture of hard work that's taking place there
0: peter i I think there's all kinds of different criticisms that's fair or unfair when you you look back at a game, it's like, well, this didn't work. So obviously, that was a bad plan. But I think the thing that seems at least universal in my opinion is that Notre Dame hasn't used play action enough. Um, I'm curious, what, do you think it's possible that there's a good explanation for that? Could it be, can you have quarterbacks that aren't comfortable with play action? Could there be some other rhyme or reason to that? It just seems like an offense that's built on a running game should be able to have a pretty good play action game to go with it. And I
1: will be honest with you. I probably have seen a handful of Notre Dame plays all year long because of the distractions that I am involved with on Saturday. I'll put it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, But the answer to your question is it, it it would be a little bit confusing. Number one, earlier in this conversation, I mentioned that Sam came from a predominantly play action kind of offense with the elongated zone read Mm -hmm. and a lot of, uh, RPOs that took place off of that, which an RPO is just a, a choice of a play action type of play anyway. So I would think in today's game and with the running game, yes, play action ought to be a big part of what you're doing. Uh, and then I would think Sam would be very good at it. Uh, it helps make your offensive line better. Uh, there are a lot of things that go into it. So now the question is, why not? It becomes then a question of what what is the the game situation. Are we re, re, uh, reverting to a empty set, drop back pass type of offense right in the beginning? Uh, have we established the run? You know, different things along those lines. And then it it goes into what is the comfort level of the play caller? Uh, because like everything else, when it gets nitty gritty, what's the play, go- play caller going to do? He's going to revert to what he thinks is fundamentally sound and what is his base. And so it takes a while for a play caller to adapt. Uh, And and I I certainly know absolutely nothing about the circumstances of Jared Parker becoming the offensive coordinator. And so I don't mean this as a slight at all, but my guess is that that happened kind of late last year into the winter, into the spring. How much of this is Jared's? And one of the things that are very difficult to do is to have to speak to people and think, more importantly, in a different language. If this is an, an offense that Jared in, inherited and he's been asked to implement it, he's doing it with one hand tied behind his back. Uh, and, and that makes it very difficult. So without knowing all of those situations and what's gone into it and how much they've tried to mold the clay, uh, it, it, it becomes difficult to, to really answer it. But that has a lot to do with it. It, it seems that with a strong running game, a strong play action quarterback that was quote unquote recruited by a different coordinator that you'd have thought that play action would have been a big part of their offense. Yes.
2: Peter, I'm going to phrase this more in the hypothetical theoretical realm. Um, So again, you've been an offensive coordinator before and people sometimes let's not not just um jared parker but people have criticized other offensive coordinators here at notre dame for not adjusting at halftime or not adjusting during the game realistically how much of that actually goes on during a game and is it more challenging for a young offensive coordinator to do that than somebody that's had a lot of experience
1: I don't know if it's more or less challenging, how much of it goes on. I don't know if it's a question of all of a sudden you go it at halftime and draw up a new play or two. It's a question of emphasis. And if you're a Notre Dame fan, you'll recognize this analogy. Lou Holtz's offense didn't change a whole heck of a lot from the time Tony Rice was the quarterback to when Rick Meyer became the quarterback. Tony Rice was an option quarterback, and Lou was very much an option coach. But when Rick became the quarterback, he became much and much more maybe an exaggeration, but he threw the ball more than he did with Tony, uh, but he still ran the option. And my point being, the offense didn't change, the emphasis did. And so at halftime, I think there's a an assessment of what have we done well, what have we done poorly, and where do we need to go forward in the second half? You eliminate thoughts more than you add them, and you change your emphasis a little bit on the success or the failures that you've had in the first half and try to uh, accentuate the successes. And maybe there's something that was in your game plan that you didn't get to in the first half. That God darn it, this was a great idea on Tuesday. It's in the game plan. Let's use it in the second half. And now all of a sudden it looks like an adjustment where it was really just an
0: emphasis. But very rarely are new plays created at halftime. Peter, in, in your experience, how much impact does a quarterback's coach have on sort of the passing attack and game plan? And how, And I guess to go with that, how much do you think should they have an impact on it?
1: It depends upon whom they are. I, I, I know I, I've been fortunate enough that I've coached at the college level and I've coached at the professional level. And the difference in the coaching is at the college level, you're much more of a dictator. At the professional level, you're much more of a facilitator. Now, having said that, Sam Hartman's now in his sixth year. He's at the point where he, where you'd like to be a facilitator with Sam and ha- get some input. You certainly want to know what he's comfortable with and what he's uncomfortable with. If you don't know that, then you're liable to call a lot of things that he's uncomfortable with. But that conversation should, should take place during the course of the week. I don't believe the quarterback is involved with the game planning itself, but as all these plays are put up on the board or put down on a piece of paper, the quarterback should have an opportunity to go, what do you like? What don't you like? What do you like in this situation? What don't you like here? And the play caller needs to be extremely sensitive to that, which all goes into the idea of playing to his strengths and playing to the things he has confidence in.
2: I'm curious too, Peter, Um, When you were a head coach, and I realized the budget at Allegheny and Holy Cross (laughs) and maybe even NFL Europe was limited on how many assistants you had, but ideally when you hired for those positions, did you marry the offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach into one position or did you prefer to have those separate, somebody coordinating the offense, somebody coaching the quarterbacks?
1: And I guess this is where I reveal part of me more than I reveal part of a philosophy. Okay. I I can't ever remember. There was only one time in my career where I was the offensive coordinator and was not the quarterback coach. And even as the head coach, I was always basically the offensive coordinator and head coach, because I think they go hand in hand. I also think, and this is just a little peculiarity of my own that to, to really get into the head of a quarterback, you need to have been a quarterback. There are a lot of people out there that don't fall into that mold, but I think that's that has an, an awful lot to do with it. If you are going to be the offensive coordinator, I do think you need to have somebody that can interpret what the head coach is saying and is the go-between to give some of that softer love than the tough love that may come from somebody else with a background at a different position or a head coach with a background at a different position, that type of thing. So I I do think quarterbacking experience is a big plus in coaching the quarterback position.
0: Peter, sort of, I guess, expanding on that. I mean, Marcus Freeman is a defensive coach uh, by trait, and he's a head coach. So I know he's leaned on the offensive coordinators to sort of help him with things. What, How does he go about? Problem solving when you when you're when you have a defensive coach as a as an off, as a head coach trying to help the offense and um how difficult is that and and in your experience, have you met a lot of defensive coaches that really have good offensive minds or just because they're sort of practicing against it I'm, i I'm curious like what what do you find in a defensive coach that could be like, okay, he could help out with the offense as well i I, I think an awful lot of it depends upon
1: uh where are you in your career when hmm. I first started coaching. Uh, I, I thought the gentleman, Sam Timer, that I worked for had a great offensive mind, very basic, very fundamental. And he was h- historically a defensive coach, but he's been around for a long time. Um, the Oh, gosh. I, I'm, I'm drawing a blank now because there was somebody else that I thought, oh, heck, there it is. <laughs> the dumbest thing, thing I could possibly. Lou was like that. Lou's background was basically a defensive coach, and Lou would spend most of his time on the offensive side. You you need to have an incredibly strong defense to win, but offense is where the game is played. Uh, Quarterback position is where the game is played. The offensive line is critically important. All all those things. We can go on and on and on. But um, for Marcus, it it has to be a challenge because he's feeling his own way as as a head coach right now. He hasn't been around for a zillion years. Uh, He has to almost put blind faith in the offensive coordinator that he has. Yes, there have to be some philosophical parameters that he's given. And I will personalize it a little bit. Uh, When I was at Holy Cross as the head coach, we're in game one or two uh, of my career. And I start getting on the phones and talking to the defensive coach. And, you know, probably in a little bit of, uh uh hut terms and he simply said to me he said Peter if it's gonna be like this it's gonna be a long season <laughs> and so basically what he was saying was Peter shut up and leave me the hell alone uh so I did and you know the, the <laughs> only things I've ever done since then with deep with defensive coordinators is try to walk out of the room and you know maybe walk in on a Monday or Tuesday and give us a suggestion from something I've seen. But you 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 have to have faith in the hire that you've made and and then do what you let him do what you've hired him for. Uh, if you keep interjecting, you upset his flow. So there's, there's a fine balance there that most of that conversation has to take place on Sundays and Mondays. And then as we get into the flow of game planning and the game itself, it's just got to flow. Peter,
2: my last question before we ask you what you're up to is this, you know, you were around Notre Dame uh, years ago. So a lot's changed in college football. But when you look at that program, do you think it's still possible Notre Dame can compete for and possibly win a national championship?
1: Yes, and and, and I'm going to make a probably a little bit of a controversial statement here. Uh, I certainly don't know all the ramifications. I'm like any other lay person out there that just reads the papers and what you guys report. But part of the situation we are in now came down to money uh from what I understand. And in having said that, it should noted when Notre Dame let Tyrone Willingham go, Notre Dame made the decision. We are now going to compete at the big time college level. We're going to do what it takes to win at the na- at the national championship level. And if you're committed to that at Notre Dame, money should never be an issue. Should never be an issue. Uh, so do I think they can? Yes. Why? Because I think in today's day and age, with um, the transfer portal the way it is, that they have an opportunity to attract enough quality-charactered people and enough quality-charactered excellent football players to win. Is it going to be easy? No. It's getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And one of the things from afar that I seem to think is taking place, and not that you guys know that much about it but in NFL Europe we used to have a new team every year we used to have a new set of players we used to have to put uh, a team together in three weeks and one of the things that's taking place now at the college level is you have 40 or 50 new faces every single year you don't get much carryover as far as team goes which goes back to the fantastic job Sam Hartman did to become a leader of that team in the short period of time and what Marcus has done But can they win it? Yes, they can. Is it going to be easy? No. And to to quote Lou, what was Lou's standing joke? When I first came, they told me they wanted me to win. Then they said, no, you don't understand. We want you to win them all. No, you don't understand. We want you to win them all by a lot. So expectations (laughs) keep rising, keep rising, keep rising. Um, And when the dust settles, Notre Dame should be very, very proud of what's going on out there. there. There are kids that are working their tail off and working hard and, does the ball always bounce that way? No. Their way? No. Will it someday? Yes.
0: Peter, before we let you go, can you catch, up, uh, catch us up on what's you, keeping you busy this time of year? <laughs> All right. You won't believe this one, but I am the supervisor
1: of replay for the Southeast Conference, the Sun Belt, and the Southern Conference. So every Saturday, the reason I haven't been able to see very many Notre Dame football games or very many plays I sit in the video center in Birmingham, Alabama, and I watch all the SEC Sunbelt. Uh, well, don't see the Southern Conference. I just evaluate those or provide feedback to the replay officials during the week. In fact, I'm working tonight at 7 o'clock. Uh, I'd have to go look here to, to even tell you who's playing tonight. <laughs> yeah, but there's a Sunbelt game that's on, and I'll be over looking over the shoulders of the people that are working it. Louisiana and, and Southern Miss play tonight. So
2: we'll I'll, have to get I'll you for a seminar on targeting sometime.
1: <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that is uh more elusive than Hoyt Wilhelm's knuckleball. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: well, all right, Peter, that's all we got for you. We really appreciate you catching up with us and, and sharing your insight and uh, make sure, hopefully you don't have too many controversial calls tonight.
1: Exactly. Guys, I appreciate it. Thank you. And anytime we can.
0: Before we get to our questions segment, I wanted to remind our listeners of a new promo we're offering for insideendesports.com. We have a 30-day free trial available to our podcast listeners who want to try out a subscription to the site. That will get you access to all of our premium content, the Insider Lounge message board, and you don't have to wait for the next podcast to ask us a question. You can take advantage of this offer by using promo code NDPOD. That's N-D-P-O-D when you sign up for a subscription on insideendesports.com. You can also find a link to the deal in the podcast description or show notes. All right, now it's time for questions. You can submit questions to us on Twitter or the Insider Lounge message board before every podcast. I'm at TJamesND and Eric's at E. First one I have for us is from our pal Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. What grade would you give the offensive play calling for the Clemson game? Can you explain why every first down in the first half they ran the ball? How about a little element of some play action or something else? Also, do you feel Jordan Faison should have more had more snaps? Although no player had the hot hand on Saturday, he was the closest one to doing anything. I thought we could maybe hold off on the Faison thoughts because we our next question is about him as well, but I wanted to at least give Marie credit for asking a good question about Faison.
2: Okay, so I would give the... Offensive play calling a D based on three of 14 on third and fourth down, having to settle for three early field goals when TDs could have tilted the whole complexion of the game. Also based on the final six drives, which netted a total of 60 yards and ended in four punts and interception and a turnover of downs. I also figure into the grades that, Audric estimate only had three carries in the second half. So those would be my grades. And then um, without getting into face on why was there every play in the first half uh, running the ball? I, I have no idea.
0: (laughs) I mean, I think some of that was, they were having success doing it. um, But I've, I'm in total agreement that that's why I asked uh, Peter about the play action, the play action thing has been the most, confounding thing to me that right and and
2: and uh, Clemson had some injuries with some very young players playing in the secondary
0: yeah and it, it, you're sort of wasting the success that you're having with the I mean Notre Dame specific specifically it was this pin and pull play that they were doing different versions of it where they were pulling multiple guys and why isn't there a play action pass off of that I mean I the I, P, pro football focus had Notre Dame have running two play action plays I couldn't find the second one I only think there was one that was a very obvious one where it was sort of a fake handoff um, and Hartman w- had pressure in his face as a result, but he dumped it off to Holden stays who ran. I think it would up being like a seven yard completion. Um, that was the only real play action play. I thought Notre Dame ran. And so, and that, w- and that was not off of that look they were doing um, um, with the pulling guards and stuff like that. So I, my grade was a C minus there were, there seemed to be upon further review, watching the game a second time. I think there were things available in the passing game early that Sam Hartman just wasn't reading out or at times the, the pass protection was failing him. And so like, I, I, I so I improved my grade. Like I, I understand what they were trying to do. It just wasn't working. Um, and even on some of those third downs, like the third, I think two of the third downs that led to field goals. It's like the play was there. It just wasn't made. Um, And uh, obviously the the play caller has to take some responsibility for that. I'm not trying to take it away from him, but it it at least makes my grade less harsh to the C minus is where I, where I came in at there. Um, And uh, we'll talk some more phase on here with this question from Joshua Williams at uh, OSH W 1372. Since the wide receivers at the top of the depth chart, aren't making consistent plays anymore. What do you think of making Faison a priority in the offense? I feel like he should be getting at least 15 touches with his playmaking ability bring back the bubble screen.
2: Not sure I would put a number on touches or reps for him, but I think more involvement makes sense on the surface. He was the second highest rated player on either side of the ball for Notre Dame in the pro football focus grades. He had 18 snaps in the game. Where it becomes a math problem of sorts is he timeshares with Chris Tyree, who is playing well and who is showing signs of a growth spurt himself. So you would conceivably give up Chris Tyree reps to increase phase on reps. Um, and then Jordan Greathouse's natural position is also slot receiver. He's playing out of position at the boundary receiver, getting reps there with some injuries. So again, I think it's more of a math problem, but the fact that he's playing well and he's fast and he can get open, you know, I would try to think of ways that I could get him involved.
0: Yeah. A 15 touches seems like a pretty high number um, for a receiver. Um, I understand you can certainly get him the ball with some jet sweeps. I, I think, I don't know why like every other play isn't like, Chris Tyree and Jordan Faison just running in jet sweep motion, even if they're not getting the ball. Like, use those casts as decoys more often. Like, if that, if, if you're so stuck on having to run the ball a lot, like, give, give the defense more to think about then. I, I just think that, um, Faison needs to be more involved. Like, 18 snaps does not seem like enough. Uh, I, I not wouldn't go as far as the 15 touches, like I mentioned. But you're right with the, like, the, The algebra of it all—it's like how do you figure out how to get these guys all snaps when your best two receivers right now, I would argue, are guys that play the same position, Um, and you're you're really playing without a lot of size if you got both of those guys on the field at the same time. So that's a tough, tough like sacrifice you have to make. But I think at this point, I mean, well, what what have we seen from the other guys that makes it like okay, you have. I'm, I I was in favor of giving Tobias Merriweather more reps, but it's like well, he's just not doing it for you. I and mean, I I don't think Notre Dame really took any shots to him before the late attempts to get him involved. But I, I don't I don't know. It's just like it's it's a head scratcher. Like I, I I'm not envious of being the one having to figure out because I don't know what the the right solution is. But it does seem like part of the solution needs to be making sure Jordan Faison gets the football sometimes. All right at Bleacher's Bobby with a long list of questions here. What's the shelf life on this? What has to happen for this to get fixed? Is it time to be concerned that long-term this might not work out? Is it as simple as hiring a really good inexperienced – experienced, not inexperienced – offensive coordinator, in your honest opinion, are there problem solvers on the staff? Can they make adjustments?
2: I think we probably should take these in chunks. I'll start with what's the shelf life on this and what happens – needs to happen for this to get fixed if you're talking about the shelf life on venting i hope we're near the end of it (laughs) um and not not singling you out bleachers bobby it's just wow it's been a lot of very disappointed people this week and it's a lot of the sky is falling kind of disappointment what happens to get this fixed i'd say um a complete evaluation of the problems on offense, simplifying didn't do it. I mean, look at the offensive coordinator, look at the scheme, how the offensive coordinator and the offensive line coach interact, offensive personnel, and perhaps adding an analyst in a role that is a former fix fixer. And then determining uh, whether you think Parker is, um, is capable of a huge growth curve so that's a lot in just that first part of your question uh, but those are the things that i think um would be helpful
0: yeah i i think i agree with all that i don't know i mean what what's the shelf life i mean as it relates to the offense i think like it has to be this off season where it gets fixed i mean we, obviously, there's you want to hope that they can do better things these last two regular season games in the bowl, but I think on a, on a larger scale, like this offseason has to be the time where decisions are made, whether it's changes in personnel, in the coaching staff, or changes in philosophy. Um, I think there's got to be those discussions here soon. Um, is it time to be concerned that long-term this might not work out? I don't know if that's more geared towards the offense or Marcus Freeman in general. Yeah, uh, I think I, I was, sure. I interpreted it more as Marcus Freeman. Um, and I, I think, I mean, I think there's reason to be concerned. I understand the concern. Um, I don't know that it, it's like reached a point where it's not fixable long-term. Um, but I I do think we're reaching a, a point in Marcus Freeman's head coaching tenure where it's like, okay, this is, this is a turning point or like a fork in the road is like, is it going to get better or are we going to stay on the same path? Um, and I don't, I, I don't know what the answer is. That is, is for that right now. So do we want to
2: take the last parts of this question? Are there problem solvers on the staff? Can they make adjustments? I, I, I guess I'll take a stab at that. Sure. Um, I think there are problem solvers on the staff just not these problems. I don't <laughs> I don't know that that exists. For example, I think if there were defensive issues, I think there's several people that can fix them and I think Marcus Freeman can also fix other things like uh team chemistry issues and <laughs> things of that nature. But but x is a no offensive issues I, I don't know that that person exists on the staff. Uh, Or at least has the voice to do it or the role to do it. And can they make adjustments? I I think that uh, for me, what Jared Parker did in the first four games against, admittedly, only one good defense out of the four, uh, that he was able, you saw in-game adjustments, you saw halftime adjustments, you saw adjustments week to week it just doesn't feel like he has a counterpunch against better defenses there there isn't an answer and so i think i would say that's where it's got this process has gotten stuck is making the adjustments
0: yeah i, I think it, whether or not there there are problem solvers they're they're not solving problems you know like uh i i don't think and that's uh, that's all that we can really judge them on is whether or not they're getting the job done and fixed. Um, I, I I mean, if you do look at some of the things like I mentioned with Sam Hartman's, uh, like what he was doing early in the passing game, he did eventually start like, hey, these guys running drag routes are open, just throw them the ball. He was doing that some, but I mean, I, I don't that wasn't the enough of a fix to totally get Notre Dame in the end zone. Uh, so, and the other fix was like, Hey, just take off and run. Like they're running man coverage. They're, they're leaving all these lanes for you to run. So there were some adjustments there, but I don't know that they were enough. Um, and I don't know who, who they're coming from necessarily. I don't know who's deciding those things or who's, who's pressing the right buttons. Um, but like in the, in the end, it's just not working together to, to get them to where they need to be. All right, next one is another long one from Nathan Reynolds at Enforcers2117. So last year we were ready to run Golden out of town, and this year we are holding our breath and hoping he stays. This year we are ready to run Jared Parker out of town. Should we give him another year to learn the personnel and get more experience? Plus, he improved the backup tight ends behind Mayer from last year. Also, how come we never hear criticism on Joe Rudolph for the O-line player, Chancey Stuckey, on how bad the wide receiver play is? and they can't get open. Who is Hartman supposed to throw the ball downfield to? So why is all of it falling on Parker? Do we really want three new offensive coordinators in three years?
2: All right, let's break this into at least two parts. Let's Mm -hmm. end the first part right before we get to also how come we never hear criticism on Rudolph. Sure. So uh, the comment about wanting to run Golden out of town and holding breath if he stays – uh, Nathan, I'm sure you're maybe more referring to conversations that maybe you've had with your friends or fellow Notre Dame fans or people on our message board, if you're on there, rather than, um, you know, I, I, I certainly wasn't advocating for them to get rid of Golden. I don't know that too many people in the media would have been, if if any at all. Um, And then what I would say to that, well, now you know they want to run Parker out of town shouldn't we give him another year you can't just extrapolate every situation and apply it elsewhere and expect the same result so and I'm not saying run Parker out of town although again I think there needs to be a deep evaluation there but what I would say is the big difference with Golden and Parker is with Golden you have a guy with extensive head coaching experience, NFL and coordinator experience, adjusting in year two, rather than a guy whose only previous college coordinator experience ended in a demotion. Um, and again, having said that, value whether he sees the kind of gro- potential growth in year two he'll need from Parker, And so I'm going to end that part there and then Mm -hmm. get to the other things.
0: Yeah, I mean, I wasn't, like, arguing that Al Golden needed to be fired. I was disappointed with Al Golden last season. I I feel like I was one of – I was a critic in a way, and and it was a combination of, well, the defense was really bad in the red zone, and it gave up some unfortunate scores when it really needed stops. But then, like, combining that with – his lack of impact as a recruiter. Like I felt like those were like, it, it needed to be where it's at now. Like I still don't think Al Golden's making a huge impact as a recruiter for Notre Dame. Certainly the success of his defense is a good thing for Notre Dame in recruiting, but the defense is great on top of it. Like the, these issues were solved in certain that Notre Dame's not getting killed in the red zone like it was last year. Um, So that was the fix. The The, the biggest problem for Jared Parker right now is that he his offense fails against good defenses. And so what is the answer for that? Is there an answer for that? And do you have the same sort of belief that Al Golden could fix the red zone issues that Jared Parker could fix what seems like an even more difficult fix in getting better against good defenses. Um, So I don't know what the answer is for that. Um, And that's why I understand the criticism for Jared Parker. Um, And I I think – also, like you got to like Jared Parker was here, so he knew the personnel. Like it was, he wasn't new to the staff, whereas Al Golden came in here in February, uh, from the NFL. And so maybe that's giving Parker too much credit for having known, needing to know the personnel because he was already the tight ends coach. But, um, and then I would just add, like, his work as a tight ends coach is completely separate from his OC work. I don't know that anyone's criticizing what he's doing as a tight ends coach. So, um, offensive coordinator is his most important role right now. And that's why he's being um, talked about in those ways. Why don't you go first on the
2: second parts of this, these questions and then I'll follow up.
0: Yeah. I I mean, I think there's less criticism for Rudolph. I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe there is more Rudolph criticism out there. I don't know that I've like levied a ton of criticism his way. he has a track record, whereas Jared Parker doesn't in his current role. Um, so I think there's some of that there. The stucky criticism, I think, is fair, but he's also dealing with injuries. He's made some good things happen with Chris Tyree and Jordan Faison being guys that weren't receivers at <laughs> at a high level and and being making those into guys that you can rely on. But he also he's obviously hasn't. Developed and progressed with a lot of guys, but some of that is injury related as well. So I think those are the those are the reasons why they're getting maybe more or there's a, a lighter response to um, the issues that are, that are coming with their the play at their positions. My follow up is yes,
2: I agree with what Tyler said. I also would say if you haven't seen criticism of Rudolph and Stuckey, you haven't been reading our message <laughs> board or my twitter <laughs> mentions um i also think it's harder from the outside looking in to evaluate a position coach simply by stats than a coordinator because the coordinator success or failures influences that picture so much mm-hmm. the um the example i gave on the radio last night on wsbt sports beat was harry he stand in his last year at tennessee um they had A broken offense he had a lot of injuries and youth in his offensive line and when harry said i'm you know gonna leave tennessee to go to notre dame the volunteer fans at best it was indifference at worst it was like bye see ya (laughs) and a a hall of fame caliber position coach walks out the door and then looks like a hall of fame coach at notre dame as far as chancy especially, um, again, Tyler made some good points about dealing with uh, both youth and injuries. I mean, in 12 years, Brian Kelly had three wide receivers with double-digit catches. In this year alone, Chancey Stockey will likely have three freshmen with double-digit catches. Yeah, I was going to say, you off. didn't
0: say freshman the first
2: time. I wanted to make sure that you got that yeah, word Yeah, freshman. <laughs> He's got two freshmen now, and Jordan Faison is probably going to get there. Mm-hmm. Um the other thing is I don't think you discount recruiting at a high level. Recruiting at a high level is part of the fix for this position. Right, yeah. And and so I think you can be a little bit more patient with even if he was an average field coach, he is recruiting at such a high level that this is going to help you down the road and and believe me there are going to be people that try to steal Chancey Stuckey
0: away because of that after the season. Yeah, that's definitely a good point. And par- Jared Parker's done a good job of recruiting tight ends, but it's like, it's Notre Dame. And if you can't recruit tight ends, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing here? Uh, so like, I don't know that there's like a, the, and uh, like also like there, there's not a long list, uh, at least to my knowledge of, of recruits that are like, I'm coming to Notre Dame to play in Jared Parker's offense because I wasn't a, really a known quantity coming into this, into this season. All right, next question is from at Charles W. Wolf. Is there anything the offense can show in the next two games that would change the narrative on Parker?
2: If the narrative is there needs to be an evaluation done at the end of the season, then no. Nothing in these last two games will move off the fact that there needs to be a deep evaluation. If the narrative is can he show growth and evolve into his role next year, then maybe there are signs that would encourage that. I don't think anything conclusive because, again, where the problem's been the biggest is against really good defenses. The Wake Forest is middle of the pack. Stanford is in the bottom 10 in defenses. So there's not the test. Now, maybe if they get into a bowl game, they will face an elite defense, and maybe not. If they face LSU, LSU's 88th in the country and right. total defense but they are a super super effective offense right uh so that would be my answer
0: yeah i mean it's hard to like tackle a narrative because th- not everyone's narrative is the same you know what i mean the, it, a narrative is a big catch-all word and uh pejorative in many senses so like i i don't i don't think so i mean i i mean how many co- arguments or conversations that do you have with with fans of sports teams that that like change their mind after they feel like they've already made a decision on something. So I don't, I don't think there's anything the offense can show in the next two games that would change the opinions of some, but I do think there are things that the offense can do in the next two games that would show signs of progress Um that Jared Parker understands the issues and he has answers for how to solve them. If, then the question becomes, well, why did it take so long uh, for that to happen? But um I think that's that's how I see the next couple of weeks playing out. If if those changes are made, next question is another one from Marie Biafore. Do you think behind closed doors there will be a shakeup with regards to play calling on the offensive side of the ball? Obviously, anything that happens would not be made public. But is there any chance Gino Gauduoli takes more of a role since he had has had prior offensive coordinator experience?
2: I think it's a Good question, Marie. I don't know if it's the smartest thing to do to answer that with a yes. Um, Maybe in the bowl game, it makes more sense where you can adjust the setup. You know, Gino's been on the sideline. Jared has been up in the box. Do you really want to mess with this? Again, when you're going against two defenses that you can beat, I'm not sure, unless you're thinking along the lines that Gino would be the next offensive coordinator. Right. Uh, I don't know that that makes sense at this point.
0: Yeah, that that was my question. Like, to what end? Like, what? Why would you do this? Like, what? It, what would be the? Is it something you feel like you need to do in order to beat these remaining teams? Then, if that's the case, then why is Jared Parker still here? Like, I, like I don't like. Maybe that's just like a um, a loyalty thing where 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 Marcus Freeman wouldn't want to make that move in the season. But if if you can't rely on Jared Parker to make the play calls for these last two games of the season, um, then that's, that's certainly not a good sign. And like you said, like what, what, what do, what, what are you learning then if, if he's not making the play calls uh, other than whether or not whoever is making the playoff play calls, whether it's Gadooley or someone else would be fit to, to replace them out. Would anyone be like satisfied if the result of what happens this season is someone else that's already on Notre Dame staff as the offensive coordinator next year. I don't, that, that doesn't seem like a a positive uh, outcome for anyone. So I, I just don't think uh, that it would make a lot of sense to, to give Parker's play calling duties to someone else for the rest of the season. Next question is from Burt Leonard at Burt 2834, which coordinator from Notre Dame's past would have made the most of this offense.
2: You know, I did, um, again, kind of an unscientific study because it doesn't cover all the bases. But what I did was I looked at the offensive play callers, including head coaches that were offensive play callers over the past 20 years. I did this a few years ago, and I updated every year. And the guy that had the best success in terms of producing more yards and more points than a defense typically gave up, and also played the most difficult defenses consistently, this will surprise some people, is Mike Denbrock. Wasn't even close. He was the most successful play caller when you look at just through that lens. I will say I think Mike Denbrock, who going into the Alabama game, had the number one offense in the country, uh, was coaching the number one offense in the country, I think he would do well. I think Charlie Weiss, who was a head coach but was basically the offensive coordinator and the offensive play caller, with Sam Hartman, would do well. And then even though Urban Meyer wasn't the offensive coordinator when he was here at the end of the Holtz era, beginning of Bob Davy era, he did some offensive coordinator-like things in terms of designing plays and even doing some play calls. I would put Urban as a guy that would do well with this offensive personnel.
0: Yeah, I tried to limit like the scope of my choices to the time I've covered Notre Dame. So that's to so, the time so, you've been alive. <laughs> well, well, you didn't name anyone that was there before I was alive. Uh, <laughs> but since since I've covered Notre Dame, that's 2012. Um, Mike Demrock was the first name that I came up with. And in case anyone doesn't know, he is the offensive coordinator at LSU. Um, Eric talked about Alabama. Just in case anyone wasn't following along, where Mike Demrock is—that's right. where he's at now. Um, ah, Tommy Reese was maybe my second choice. Like, he certainly would have known the personnel better than Mike Dembrock. I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't choose Reese over Dembrock, but I do think like there's some reasons to believe that he would know how to do this. And I, I think, I think transitioning the offense he was running into a version that utilized Sam Hartman in his best way would be better because it was his offense, whereas. Right, where Notre Dame's Peter even
2: mentioned Peter Voss even mentioned that if he and if he you know Jared was inheriting Tommy Reese's offense, he was doing kind of doing things with one hand behind his back. I think was his quote.
0: Yeah, and I think that's that's what it feels like to me. Is what happened is like Parker is sort of just sort of tried to transform Tommy Reese the offense that Tommy Reese is running. Now, I don't know if like if Jared Parker was starting with a clean slate, he would do the same thing or not. I don't really know that. I and mean, we don't have a uh a track record to necessarily judge that on. Um so I, I think I, I think I would prefer Reese um than Parker in this situation. Um and that was sort of the extent. Like I, Notre Dame has hasn't exactly had a bunch of off awesome offensive coordinators that like I I don't know that Chip Long would do a better job um with this um Chiplong i think maybe was a little bit better with rpos so maybe there would be something there but um i i think den Brock, i think is the easiest answer of this and uh he's certainly sort of matched i know eric has long been like the study that eric was talking about he's always like said, highlighted and mentioned den Brock as is being underrated and i think uh Eric looks pretty smart right now with the way Denbrock is, is playing or coordinating at uh, LSU right now. All right. Next question is from clan a D on the inside, on the inside lounge. Do you think Sam Hartman played everyone at Notre Dame? I mean, did he sit back after not making the big show after four years and say, I am never heading to the NFL. So let's go another direction get some exposure as the quarterback in Notre Dame, get some NIL money. Like while I can graduate with the ND degree, and then coach, do TV, etc. I made a comment sometime back that I didn't think a dude that hasn't that hadn't already headed to the show after four years with his stats and was still around for a sixth year was the guy to go after in the portal. Go Irish. My answer is not in a million years.
2: <laughs> yeah, and, it's- and one one reason too that he came to Notre Dame was he was not in an NFL style offense right he wanted a year of training to be in an nfl style offense and that's all shut up now
0: yeah i I don't i don't think that's fair like so like it's his fault that he's pretty is that like is that what we're like because he's getting all this attention because of his looks like we're holding that don't hate me because i'm beautiful (laughs) yeah like i don't know like sam hartman is a lot of things but i would never question his like competitiveness like he's a competitor um, I, he didn't just come here to sort of write out and like accentuate his fame. Um, I, I, so I like, I, I don't buy the premise. I, I, I don't know why now folks would all of a sudden, like like usually staying in college is a good thing. People like that about guys that want to stay in college and, and make the most of their opportunities. Um, but, but, but in this case, it seems like that's being used as an indictment for Sam Hartman. Um, like, did you think that about Jack Cohn? <laughs> like, uh, he didn't sort of have the same sort of NIL and uh, social media presence that that Sam Hartman did, but he he came to Notre Dame and wanted to better himself as a player and, and take advantage of the opportunity. Um, Notre Dame's had plenty of guys that have made not plenty, but they've had a handful of guys that make it to their sixth year. Like, um, and I don't know that I've ever heard a criticism of those guys shouldn't be here anymore. Um, so I I don't buy this, this line of thinking. Next question is from Jack Quinn at JQ 6008. I know it's an obvious hot take reactionary question, but why not start Steve Angeli the rest of the way? What's the downside? I'm not totally blaming Hartman for Saturday, but see what Angeli can do. So you have an informed off season decision.
2: Um, so I'll start with the Angeli part of this, the coaching staff, I believe already knows what. Angeli can do. I think anything that he would do against Wake Forest and Stanford's defense isn't going to change that opinion one way or another. Now, had Sam Hartman been hurt and Angeli played against Clemson on the road, maybe that gives you another piece of information that you don't have, uh, but not because you demoted Sam Hartman and have a guy that threw six touchdown passes against them last year. Benching him and not playing them against this year doesn't make sense. What's the downside? One, you could lose your team. Uh, And Peter alluded to this a little bit, is that you're sending them a message. Are you sending them a message that the season's over? If then, why doesn't Joe Alt opt out for the rest of the season? Then, If these are meaningless games and you're playing for next year, then why should he play? The rest of your year. I also think you weaken the allure of getting another portal quarterback or even portal position players if you give up on the team. I think the worst thing that can happen is kind of a team mutiny, something that Brian Kelly faced for a different reason in the 2011 season. Um, I think it also sends a message that you're blaming the players and maybe not addressing what the real issue is, which I still think Roots and coaching. And then you also risk losing games, which Notre Dame at this point, I think there's a huge difference in how Notre Dame would be perceived at seven and five and losing games to Wake and Forest and Stanford and being nine and three going into a bowl game.
0: Yeah. To me, it's as simple as winning and losing games. Like you don't play Steve Evangeli because he doesn't give you a better chance to win. Um, and if he loses games, that's not good for Notre Dame. That's why you wouldn't start him. That's the downside. I think some of the other things are a little overstated. I mean, I do think, cause you can make the, you can flip the same argument. It's like, well, are we giving up on the season by benching Sam Harmon? It's like, well, well, if you say, if you, if you're holding everyone to a high standard and Sam isn't doing what is being asked of him, then you can flip that and say, well, we're trying to, we think it's the best thing for us to win by playing Steve Angeli. Now, how many people are going to buy that? Are there enough people on the team that would say, okay, yeah, I agree. We need to, we need Steve Angeli in here. That that's, that's the difference between what's been happening and what, what isn't happening in the games that we need. So I think, I think you could score skew that. I mean, you could also like, what's worse for Notre Dame's um, per like the perspective on Notre Dame or the perception of Notre Dame as it relates to portal quarterback recruiting. Is it worse to have not gotten the most out of Sam Hartman or to bench him for the last two or three games of the season? Like I think either of those things are bad, so I don't think you're you're playing from a position of strength um, as it relates to that. So um, I just think it comes down to winning games, and Sam Hartman gives you the best chance to win games, um, and that's why he will remain the starting quarterback. All right, next question is from LDL Go Irish on the Insider Lounge. My question is on Zeke Correll. How did he get the concussion? Didn't he have one previously at Notre Dame? How is he progressing? How is the ankle he hurt in August? Didn't he have ankle issues before at ND? Is that part of the reason he periodically gets pushed back? Did that hurt injury hurt offensive line consistency, especially with two new guards?
2: How did he get in the the concussion? Apparently got hit in the head. Um, It didn't come up in the press conference, the maybe six-question press conference. It was pretty short. Uh, Did he have a concussion before? I believe he had one in the 2021 season that caused him to miss some time. Mm -hmm. uh and how is he doing we'll let you know monday um but the bye week came at a good time so he could take the whole week off uh for concussion protocol and try to move through at that but we'll get the progress report on how that's going on monday let's see uh i think one huge positive to come out of the clemson game was ashton craig played extremely well especially during a time where Clemson kind of knew what was coming offensively let's see did he have ankle issues before it before at ND, I can't remember if he did about the ankle is that part of the reason he periodically gets pushed back I don't think the pushback was related to the ankle injury in August uh that ha- has happened to him um at other times in his career, Uh, some of that size related. Did the injury hurt the offensive line consistency, especially with the two guards? No, they played well together at Ohio State. I mean, I think this is a recent thing. Um, There has not been offensive line consistency in the interior. They've had some good games, and they've had games like Clemson.
0: Yeah, this this line of questioning just felt like trying to find a reason – to give Zeke Carell the benefit of the doubt for his play. And I don't, I, none of them line up to me as as making sense. Like if his ankle hasn't been fine, then he shouldn't have been playing. Um, be, like I, I, I To me, I was when I was reading this, I was like, well, I wonder if he's trying to like draw a parallel between Zeke Carell and, and Jarrett Patterson, where clearly he was impacted by his injury at the beginning of the season, which was much more serious than whatever ankle issue Zeke Carell was dealing with. Um, but Jared Patterson got better as the season went and Zeke Corral isn't getting better in my opinion. So if he was dealing with an ankle issue, then he should have been benched at some point and and given time to, to let that ankle heal. Um, I don't think him missing a little bit of time during camp hurt the O-line consistency. I don't know that I don't know that when those guys have problems, it doesn't seem like they're not playing well together. It's just like they're getting abused and i like like that's z corral's biggest problem is his physical capability of moving guys out of the position clemson was playing guys head up on him and making him work for the the, the ground that's in front of him and and he was losing that battle too frequently um and i didn't know when had the
2: problems against duke too
0: yeah on. yeah that that wasn't the, that's not the first time that z corral has had struggles so I, I don't know when he got the concussion. I didn't go back to try to figure it out. It doesn't... I mean, concussions don't always have to come on a big hit. They can come from a series of hits that that come together. So, I didn't... Like, watching the game, I didn't know he had a concussion until it was announced on the broadcast. I thought, like, he might have just got benched because he was playing that poorly. So, um, hopefully, he's can get back and have this concussion issue passed him by the time Notre Dame plays again. Um, but... Uh, I that's a position where I think Notre Dame needs to be a lot better. Um, and so either Z Carell needs to play better or uh, that would be a position I would consider making a change at as well. All right. Next question is from T Russo 13 on the entire lounge. I was curious about your thoughts on Chansey Stuckey. He obviously can recruit how much blame falls to him about the poor performance of the wide receivers. I would think with the raw material there, he should be able to develop them into something much greater than we have
2: kind of answered this a little bit earlier. Um, again, injuries to the boundary receivers hurts the whole receiving core. I mentioned freshman production. I mean, if you want to pin Tobias Merweather on him, I suppose you could do that. Uh, I don't know if you had a different wide receivers coach. Would Tobias be more productive? I I just remember talking to Brady Quinn about Chancey Stuckey uh, those two were teammates on the Cleveland Browns, and how much chance he stuck was coaching the other wide receivers on the Browns team, even though he was kind of a borderline guy onto the roster, he made the roster because of his receiver knowledge and X's and O's knowledge. So I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt.
0: Yeah. I think the one that everyone probably is like – well, if Chancey Stucky is a good wide receiver coach, isn't, why isn't Tobias Merriweather better? Um, I think that's a fair question. To me, from my perspective, it seems like Tobias Merriweather's issue is more of a focus and effort thing than it is uh, not being taught how to do things thing. Um, so, like, I would, I don't know that I blame a coach for that, right? Like, this is college football. He, it shouldn't be on Chancey Stuckey to motivate Tobias Merriweather into making plays. Um, obviously the injury issues have impacted the receiver position. He's had a lot of bad luck so I think that's where some of the benefit of the doubt comes and um, I think he he got to give him some credit for what Chris Tyree and Jordan Faison have done like that doesn't go you can't just say he he's done a terrible job and, and ignore the guys that are, are out there making plays for them and the track records that those guys had like those guys were nobodies in terms of wide receivers at the college football level and now they're guys that well, someone is asking needs 15 touches per game. So I think we got to have some perspective there. All right. Next one is from Baba Ganoush at PLACT underscore ITFDB. Who slash what are your pleasant surprises thus far in 2023? And who slash what are your biggest disappointments? So
2: I'm going to go with four players each and I'm just going to do players. I think we've hit on big picture and coaching disappointments and surprises or whatever. Yeah. So, so I, I picked four guys, all of whom I thought had potential to impact the team, but maybe have impacted it much more than I predicted. Uh, And that would be Jordan Faison, Rico Flores, Cooper Flanagan, and Josh Burnham. And I went back and looked at my, you know, 20, top 23 players for 23. For example, I had Xavier Watts probably higher than most people, so I wouldn't put him on the surprise list. Although seven interceptions, yeah, I didn't have that on my bingo card. Um, on on the disappointments, I would say it, these guys would be disappointed: Jordan Batello, uh, Tobias Merweather, Zeke Carell and Antonio Carter II.
0: Yeah, i I was in the on the same boat. Like I had high expectations for Watts, but I, I feel like. This level is 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 higher than I could expect, so I included him on the surprises. I was also very high on the cha- the. But you know, of-
2: I've been a Watts honk for a. Yeah, long no, time. I agree. So, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I I did the same exercise, and I think I was like the highest on Mitchell Evans. Um, and hmm. so that's I think for most people considered a surprise. So I I I won't. I didn't choose him. I would say Thomas Harper. Like I think you. Could, yeah, you, there was That's hope that one. he would do good, but it's like, well, he's he's like the unquestionable nickel, and there's like he certainly he hasn't made every play, but he's been a big big part of the defense. Um, Jordan Faison certainly. Um, disappointments, I think, are probably a longer list. I I think, I think it'd be fair. I I don't know if I want to include both the guards, but just about everyone on the offensive line outside of Joe Walt. like I I don't know that they've played to the the standard that we expected them to to me that Correll and Fisher are the ones I had high, the highest expectations for um, and they haven't played that well I I give I would give Coogan and Spinner a little bit of the benefit of the doubt and that like my expectations weren't as high for them obviously Tobias Merriweather's on that list um, I think I think you just have to jaden thomas i mean that's uh, that's injury related in large part but that was someone i thought would be the leading receiver this season and he's not so um i think you could name a lot of receivers and a lot of offensive linemen um in terms of the disappointments so far this year all right our last question is from sjb 75 on the internet lounge is 2024 recruiting done well no because um the coach
2: this today are going to hit the road. Um, Tyler had a story on this today um that they're going to be out recruiting tonight Friday and Saturday to finish the bye week. So what are they doing recruiting I mean they're looking at 2025s and visiting or or watching them but they're also seeing 2024 so that includes babysitting you know trying to make sure that they stay in the class and that they're feel like they're wanted and loved and so forth. And they're also still trying for some flips. I don't know how Tyler can probably speak to the viability of being able to flip anybody at this point, but I I do think that they're still in there pitching for that.
0: Yeah. I mean, the 2024 class might be done in terms of guys who end up signing, um, but they're not done in terms of trying. Uh, I think the guy of the ones that they're trying to flip Nam, Namdi Okboko, the defensive tackle committed to Georgia, I think is, at the top of the list in terms of the likeliness of maybe Notre Dame's ability to flip him. I wouldn't say that it's extremely high necessarily, but I do think that there is a chance that 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 could still work out for Notre Dame. Um, And I think a lot of, you need to spend a lot of energy making sure no one gets flipped out of your class. And uh, so that's, that will be a, a lot of the effort being done over the next five or six weeks here before the early signing period. All right, that's it for today's episode of the Inside Indy Sports Podcast. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other popular podcast platforms. If you like what you hear, give us a star rating, leave a review, and share our podcast feed with someone who thinks it's still too soon to put up Christmas decorations. Okay. As I mentioned earlier, we're offering a 30-day free trial to our podcast listeners who want to try out a subscription to com. So please take advantage of that with code NDPOD, that's N-D-P-O-D, this will be the last you hear from us in the podcast feed or on YouTube this week. Um, but we'll be back to our normal routine starting Monday with Football Never Sleeps. And we'll have plenty of written coverage coming your way before then. So stick with insideandesports.com for all your Notre Dame coverage needs.